My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future. Responses to COVID-19. So I'm thrilled to be joined for this edition of Bridges to the Future by Rutger Bregman, who has written a book called Humankind, which is one of the most powerful books I have read for a long time and a book I have absolutely no hesitation about saying everybody needs to read and that it will change your life if you do so. So, Rutger, welcome to Bridges to the Future. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And I know you as the author of Humankind, but introduce yourself more broadly, Rutger, to our listeners. So I'm a Dutch writer and historian. I live in this lovely, small, boring place called Houten, which is a little bit to the south of Utrecht. And Utrecht is to the south of Amsterdam, if that's the only place you know in the Netherlands. Yeah, so um, just been uh, doing the book tour from home now. And so what's it been like for you during the kind of lockdown? And how have you had to adapt the normal routine of, you know, touring around the world, promoting a book by doing it from home? Yeah, it's very different, obviously. I mean, normally I would be in the UK right now and then I'd go to the US and do lots of events. And I mean, that's really a shame because I always love talking to readers, you know, about the ideas in the book. I, you learn so much from that. But then again, there's the benefits as well, right? You don't have to travel and you can just do everything from home, which is, to be honest, it's quite efficient. <laughs> so um, in the end, I'm not complaining. Personally, obviously, I mean, it's pretty terrible to see what's going on in the world at the same time. One of the things about this crisis, isn't it, Rooker, is that those of us who are knowledge workers, who are lucky enough to live in reasonably nice houses, who have maybe access to a garden or whatever, are in a very, very different position to those people who are working health services or those people who have overcrowded houses. So it's really important, isn't it, that we think about other people and demonstrate compassion. But you'd want to distinguish that from trying to empathize, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think the problem with empathy is that it often works as a spotlight, right? As a searchlight. And that as you zoom in on a particular person or a group of people, sort of the rest of the world fades into the background. There's this wonderful book written by this phenomenon uh, by Paul Bloom that I can recommend to everyone. He's an American psychologist. So what you'd actually want to do is to zoom out a bit more and you need your brain, you know, your rationality to do that. People may think, oh, this guy has written this book about human kindness and, you know, how being kind can change your life. Well, actually, it's a bit more paradoxical than that. And often it's not a good idea to follow your intuition. Well, that's just one of the ideas I hope to discuss with you as we proceed. But now it's the time, Rutger, to ask you the question that we ask everybody on this podcast. So, Rutger Bregman, how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic has passed? Well, it's very hard to make predictions, right? As they say, especially about the future. <laughs> I think that's an old Danish saying. But here's what I hope. 
for the past 40 years, we've lived in this value system that many people call neoliberalism. I mean, we can have all kinds of discussion on what particular name you should give it. But I think we can all agree that for decades, the focus has been on the values of competition and selfishness, you know, and the, the idea that people are deep down are just basically selfish and that we need to design our whole society around it, right? Our schools, our workplaces, our democracies, even our prisons, you name it. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to basically update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology that I would call sort of a neo-realism, an updated view of what it you know, means to have a realistic idea of human nature, which would say that actually people are hardwired to cooperate and to be friendly and to work together, and that we should design our institutions around that idea. Now, this is not a prediction, obviously, but it's a possibility. It's something I hope for. So we've seen in this crisis people responding pretty well, generally speaking. So the vast majority of people have followed the advice that has been given to them. And a huge number of people have been active in volunteering or wanting to look out for their neighbours. Now, there's two things about that that are very relevant from your book. The first is that this is not an unexpected response when it comes to crisis. But the other is there is a sense, but yes, but this only happens in a crisis. You can't normalize these levels of kind of personal responsibility and social responsibility. How do you respond to those two aspects of where we are? Well, I think that if you look at the history of the 20th century, you see that crises have often been abused by those in power, right? To get more power. Think about the burning of the Reichstag and Hitler's ascent to power. Think about what's happening in Hungary right now. Think about what happened after 9-11, you know, uh, two illegal wars, massive surveillance of citizens by the government. I mean, we all know that this could lead us down a very dark path. But then there are also other examples. Think about the New Deal, you know, that was basically written in the midst of the Great Depression. Or maybe a better example, think about the Beveridge Report, right? Which sort of laid the ground for the welfare state after the war. And that was written in 1942, if I'm correct. I mean, they didn't wait until after the war, you know, it was while bombs were dropping on London. So I think this is exactly the right time to think about the future. There are some people who are saying, don't politicize the pandemic. I have some sympathy for that argument, but then at the same time, you have to realize that now decisions are being made in hours or days that will have influence for years or decades. So it's time to pay attention. And you argue strongly in the book that the idea that organizations can be based on trust and a different notion of human motivation, one that focuses on human intrinsic motivation, a sense of purpose and contribution rather than simply money or power, you demonstrate that there are lots of examples of that being true. That isn't simply a pipe dream. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's this old theory within Western culture that scientists call veneer theory. And the idea here is that civilization is only a thin veneer and that as soon as something happens, a natural disaster or people shipwreck on an island or there's a war or a crisis or a pandemic, right? You name it, that people show their true selves. You know, civilization is only a thin veneer and turns out in reality, we're animals, we're monsters, we're beasts, right? We behave horribly. And this idea, you know, it goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks or the early Christian church fathers, you know, St. Augustine talking about the concept of original sin, or read the Enlightenment philosophers, Thomas Hobbes, David Hume, Adam Smith. Again and again, this idea returns that deep down, most people are selfish. And the reason that I started writing this book is that actually in the last 15 to 20 years, there's sort of been this silent revolution in science, right? So 
scientists from very diverse disciplines, anthropologists, archaeologists, sociologists, psychologists, you name it, have all been moving to a much more hopeful view of human nature. And often they don't know it about each other, right? Because they're so specialized and do such brilliant work in their own field, they don't notice what's going on in the field next to them. So I thought that I should just write a book to connect the dots and to show that something bigger is going on, that veneer theory is simply false, and that this has pretty big implications for how we organize everything in our society. So your book is fundamentally about the goodness of human beings, yet there are villains. And one of the things that's very striking is the way in which pretty poor research commanded enormous attention and credibility. So amongst the people who don't come out of your book terribly well is Philip Zimbardo, actually who spoke at the RSA a few years ago, whose Stanford Prison Experiment turns out really not to carry much water. Stanley Milgram, the author of one of the most famous experiments ever undertaken in social psychology. So two elements here. One is, what is your view of what drives people respectable researchers to want to push a piece of research out there that has these kind of massive implications, even though it's kind of problematic. But then secondly, why do we want to believe this stuff? You know, when you expose, as you do, Zimbardo and Milgram, you think, well, if we'd approached this work with a more critical lens from the beginning, we'd have exposed it much earlier. So why were we suckers for this stuff? So in the 60s, there was this whole generation of young sociopsychologists, you know, that wanted to make a career with these exciting experiments. And, you know, Zimbardo was one of them, Stanley Milgram was one of them, and there were others as well. And I think what they did is they sort of created a modern version of veneer theory, right? So the modern version was, look, here you have normal, average, healthy people. You put them in a little bit of different context, right? For example, in a fake prison or, you know, in, in Stanley Milgram's situation, you ask them to shock completely innocent people in another room. And again, there you go. Average people are willing to do horrible things to other people. So civilization is just a thin veneer. You know, this is who we really are. So you have to understand that even though it seemed very new at the time, it was just an old theory in a modern form, you know, an old theory that was really deeply embedded in Western culture and a theory, and this is maybe even more important, that has always been really in the interest of those in power, right? Because if we cannot trust each other, right? If it is true that civilization is just a thin veneer, then we need a leviathan. Then we need those in power, the kings and the generals and the CEOs and the managers to control us, right? So a dark view of human nature legitimizes hierarchy, right? Now, if I say actually people are pretty decent, that may sound, you know, very innocent and very nice, but it's actually quite revolutionary if you think it through, because it means that we can organize our society in a very different way, in a much more egalitarian way. Now, one other part to the question you asked, you know, why are these stories so famous is, I mean, there's a lot of media dynamic going on here as well. Something that I discovered again and again while researching this book is that, you know, when there is a finding from some scientists that says, you know, deep down human beings are horrible and nasty, you know, have been waging war forever, then that's on the front page of the New York Times very quickly, right? But if some other academic says, well, actually, the evidence is not very strong, then somehow that doesn't really get as much attention. Yeah, I mean, we've all known this for a long time, right? The dynamic of the news, it mostly focuses on, on the negative, on uh, the things that get eyeballs. So maybe that partly explains it as well. One final thing to say, though, is that obviously there are a lot of 
scientists that I critique in my book, you know, especially all the scientists from the 60s and the 70s. But I have only been able to do that because I could rely on the work of a new generation of scientists who've been doing brilliant work, right? So it's, it's science self-correcting here as well. So your book encourages, I think, two attitudes of mind, which I've already found myself practicing having read it. The first is to understand that we need the news, but that it's basically bad for us. So one has to have an attitude to the news, which is we want a free press, we want proper journalism, we need to know what's going on in the news, but you need to understand that it systematically tends to reinforce certain prejudices that we have. Yeah. And maybe make a distinction between the news and journalism as well, right? So if you buy the newspaper, then preferably buy it on Saturday or on Sunday and then start at the back, right? Where all the sort of the long stories about the structural forces that govern our lives are and, and just ignore the breaking news. <laughs> because the news is often about the sensationalist, you know, the incidental, the negative stuff. While there's a huge amount of really important, brilliant journalism being done that helps us to understand the world in a better way. But yeah, you need to be wary of this phenomenon that psychologists call mean world syndrome that you can diagnose with people who have just seen too much of the news, right? They've become more cynical, more anxious and more depressed. The other attitude of mind, I think, is one of a healthy questioning of science. So if you look at the UK government over the last couple of years, certainly, I guess, Boris Johnson in particular exemplifies this. He went from a situation in the Brexit debate when the position was to spurn expertise, to a position now where he says everything we do must be based simply on translating science into policy. Now, it seems to me neither of those positions are quite right. The position should be we need to look at the science, particularly social science, and we need to learn from it, but we need to understand that science is contested and that things which feel true today may not feel true tomorrow. You know, this is the question that I asked myself continuously while writing this book was, will this hold up 10 years from now, right? Because so often now there's a fancy new paper published in Science or Nature, you know, the most prestigious journals out there. And then two years later, there's a replication and turns out, well, actually, you know, the evidence was not as strong as we thought it was. And you've changed your mind, haven't you, Rook? I mean, I noticed in the book, you talk quite a lot about Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, which you were a great fan of and quoted, and now you're much less sure about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, writing this book has really been a process of reckoning with my own ideas. You know, I used to have a more cynical view of human nature. I used to tell these stories about the Stanford prison experiment, the Milgram's experiment. I've got a chapter in the book about Easter Island. There's this wonderful book by Jared Diamond, Collapse, that many of the listeners will have heard about or maybe even read, where he tells this very dark story of Easter Island. And I, I mean, I wrote about this in earlier books as well. It's only while researching this book that I discovered that yeah, most of it is wrong, actually. And that in reality, for example, when it comes to Easter Island, no, this was not a civilization that destroyed itself. It was actually a really resilient civilization that survived even when circumstances radically changed. Yeah, it was really a, a long road for me. Another person who gets a little bit of a mauling in the book is Steven Pinker with his assertion that life before civilization was nasty, brutish and short. But Yeah, which I used to believe as well. Yeah, I start my previous book, Utopia for Realists, with the assertion, you know, in the past, everything used to be worse, right? And I quoted Thomas Hobbes, who said that the life of hunter-gatherers was nasty, brutish and short. And this is also an example of something that gets a huge amount of attention in the press. But actually, if you go deeper in the academic research, right, and study the work of the real specialists, the anthropologists and the archaeologists, you discover that actually the evidence for war before the moment that we became sedentary, so 
10,000 years ago. Whether you look at cave paintings or at excavated skeletons, there's almost no evidence. And it's much more likely, actually, that the moment we became sedentary, we settled down and we started this whole process of civilization, that was actually the big mistake. You know, that's when everything went wrong. That's when we got hierarchy, patriarchy, wars, inequality, infection diseases like uh, Corona, you name it. It's pretty much the opposite of what I had always been told in school. I want now to turn to the practical side of your work, because I know lots of people listening to this are thinking, well, this is all great, and I want to believe it's true, but what on earth do you do with these insights? So let's start with perhaps the hardest case, you know, business. So there might be business people, people working in business listening to this. They work in organizations with very tight performance management structures, with bonus systems, with cultures where people are constantly told to compare with each other. And if you're not going up, then you're going down. You give a couple of examples of businesses run on completely different kinds of principles. Yeah. And one of my favorite examples is Burtzorg, that uh, the founder, Joost de Blok, actually, you know, received the big RSA prize, right? I think it was in 2014. I chaired the event, Rutger. I was, it's a warm memory that I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Joost is a good friend of mine, and he's a really revolutionary thinker and doer, you know? He started this company, Burtzorg, in, what was it, 2006? And back then, everyone thought he was crazy. What he's doing is delivering care in the neighborhood. And back then, there was really this introduction of market forces in healthcare in the Netherlands. That was sort of the big idea that everything would become more efficient if organizations could become more competitive, etc. And everything had to become a product, right? So all these kind of different forms of care that was being given, they tried to define it as a product. So you had care plus and care plus plus or care extra special care. This is one of the ironies of trying to introduce market forces that you need a huge amount of bureaucracy. So you'll said, okay, I don't want to do this. We deliver only one product and it's called care. And we're going to ditch all the managers. So we don't use managers anymore. We have just self-directed teams around 10, 11, 12, maybe. They hire their own colleagues. They decide for themselves what additional education they need, et cetera, et cetera. They start with two self-directed teams in the east of the Netherlands. And now they've got 15,000 employees. And there are professors and experts coming from all over the world, you know, to interview Jost Block, which is often a hilarious situation because, you know, when you talk to him, he doesn't really sound like an expert. I mean, he says things like managing is bullshit, you know, you just got to let people do their work. <laughs> and he just hates all the disruptors and innovative thinkers, you know, who give keynotes as all these congresses about how to change the world, blah, blah, blah. And he, he told me, well, actually, the world often benefits more from continuity rather than change. Anyway, I think the central thing what he does is he trusts his employees. You know, he relies on what psychologists call intrinsic motivation, right? So he doesn't work with targets or bonuses or whatever. He doesn't think that people need to be told what to do but that actually they want to do the work as best as they can. You know, they have their own motivation and that you just need to um, give them the freedom to do their job in the best possible way. It's a very simple philosophy, but it's been incredibly successful here in the Netherlands and now expanding around the globe. Yeah, now I could publish a little book on the wisdom and wisdom of Joste Vlog. A couple of things he said when he came to the event here. Remember, somebody said to him, but in your system, without kind of performance management and the usual incentives, you know, how do you stop people doing bad stuff? And he said, you know, if you want to do bad stuff, I don't think you'd really become a nurse. You know, you could become a corporate banker or something. It's just not the best profession to choose if you want to do bad stuff. So that was nice. 
And then another thing he said, which really struck home for people in the audience in the UK because of the level of bureaucracy in the public sector, partly for the reasons you described, was he said, you know, I think that people have only got a certain amount of kind of bandwidth. And I think that they should be using nearly all their imagination in the question of how to provide care and the least mental effort as possible on how to deal with the system in which they work. And, you know, in the room, there was a kind of frisson because this was a room full of people working in systems where actually the most of their bandwidth is taken up dealing with the complexities of the system with a little bit left over for dealing with the needs of the carers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so often we have this debate in our society about, I don't know, capitalism versus communism or the market versus the state. But I've come to believe that often, you know, there are two sides of the same beast, right? It's often the same kind of hierarchical top-down thinking what's really the problem and i think that people like jos de Bloch show us it like a genuine third way right like a genuine alternative where you obviously have a state that is big in terms of redistribution right healthcare is not cheap and you need you know have relatively high levels of taxation in order to finance it i mean burtsorg is a publicly financed organization but then that doesn't mean that you also need to have this big state in terms of paternalism, right? You can have a very anarchistic state. That was one of the initial ideas I had when I was writing this book. One of the initial titles I had in mind was sort of the anarchist state. I think the state should learn to think like an anarchist, which is, I know, sounds ridiculous, but it's sort of <laughs> what I'm looking for, right? Sort of this middle ground, or this alternative. And I think that Ilse Block is really showing us an example of how this could be done. Now, let's turn from business to politics. And we can probably deal with this quite quickly because you don't need to convince me about this. I'm a massive fan and the RSA is a massive promoter of deliberative democracy. But people often think about representative democracy as having been established to expand democracy. Well, it was in a way, but it was also designed because rulers feared that citizens couldn't be trusted and therefore you needed to have a kind of barrier between citizens and decision makers. Now, what we see with deliberation all around the world is if you genuinely hand power to citizens in the right structures where they hear all the arguments and they can tap into expertise, they're perfectly capable exactly. of reaching very good judgments. And, and you have some examples of that in your book. The central thing that you find again and again is that what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. So if you assume that people are dumb, you know, that they're stupid, that they're lazy, and if you're going to treat them in that way, right? give them, I don't know, a referendum, Brexit, yes or no, which is, I mean, which is a ridiculous question in the first place, right? You need to have a highly complex discussion around something like that. We should have had deliberative democracy around that. But then if you actually take them seriously and bring them together around a table, whether they're left wing or right wing, you know, highly educated or no education at all, rich or poor, turns out they can have really good, sensible discussion and reads very complex compromises. The issue here, again, is that often the press hates deliberative democracy. And the reason is that it looks incredibly boring, right? It's just people having reasonable discussions. There was this program on Channel 4, I believe, in the 90s that was called the People's Parliament, where they took 100 you know, randomly selected people from Britain to discuss highly complex issues and, and also controversial issues, you know, with the drugs or the level of taxation, that kind of thing. And it turns out it really worked. But it was terrible for ratings, right? Because it was really boring to look at, people having sensible discussions. I mean, makers of reality TV have long known that if you put people, you know, on an island and just 
let them do whatever they want, nothing happens, right? They're going to drink tea and, you know, they're going to have a good time. So you really need to lie to them, deceive them, and then try and make sure something happens so people will actually watch your show. But this is, I guess, one of the big problems with democracy is that if you actually trust other people, it works. And, and that's not what gets the attention in the press. Final thing, because we are so constrained by time, final thing is education. Now, one of the things that's been really interesting about this crisis is so many people homeschooling. Now, I talk to a lot of parents about homeschooling. I've got a seven-year-old myself. And what they all seem to be doing is, yes, they're getting their children to do the work, although they're quite often a bit underwhelmed by how interesting the work is. But nevertheless, they get their kids to do the work. But they're also making sure that the kids get regular breaks to have some fun, to do some craft, to do some art. It's a kind of interesting that the way in which parents are educating their children by necessity, because in the end, it's not much fun dealing with the child who's bored out of their brains, is to have a kind of more balanced mix of different kinds of, of activities. I'm interested as whether that might lead us to question the kind of educational regimes that have sprung up around the world over the last 30 years. And again, in your book, there's an example of a very different way of thinking about schooling. Yeah, yeah. I went to a school in the south of the Netherlands that basically does everything differently, right? So think about everything that you have in a school and then just take it away, right? Whether it's homework or walls between the different rooms or, you know, teachers who are these hierarchical leaders or whatever, right? And then just give kids the freedom to pursue their own fascinations. At first you think, well, that sounds like an anarchist utopia to me that's never going to work out these kids will want to play Fortnite or just game all day or use drugs or whatever but then you go there and you find that it actually works and there are many other schools around the globe that show that this actually works it's again about the distinction between extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation right you really rely more on the latter and it turns out that kids are sort of naturally creative and curious but then you wonder about, you know, the system we have right now is that it seems to take it away often in kids, right? And this was one of, the, for me, it was one of the most touching things to, it really touched me when I was there because, you know, I, I was at a stricter uh, school, you know, both primary and secondary, where also a lot of bullying was going on. And then to discover that sociologists have actually known for a long time that bullying is not a natural thing. You know, it's really a product of specific institutional circumstances, what they call total institutions. And the perfect example here is the classic British boarding school, right? You can't get away only, say, in the summer or Christmas. There are these uh, strict groups that you're a part of. There are hierarchies. There is competition organized by those in power. And this is like the perfect environment for bullying. Now, if you remove all of that and you give kids much more freedom, bullying pretty much disappears, right? So I long believe that sort of bullying is just part of what kids do, right? But then you realize, well, maybe we've made highly unnatural institutions where this kind of thing starts to happen. And you just realize what a tragedy that actually is and what an obligation we have to, to try and make different institutions. We've run out of time, Rooker, which is tragic. But I just want to make a point, which you kind of make in the book. But when you advocate and we advocate things like deliberative democracy or forms of schooling, which give as much scope as possible for children to be self-directed or businesses that are based upon trust and cooperation. Nobody is saying it's easy to do this. These organizations will still have conflict. They'll still have problems. There will still be some people who try to game the system. But the question is this, it is equally as much effort to maintain systems that are based on distrust, based on suspicion, 
based on constant imposition of carrots and sticks. So the question for humanity is this. Do we want to put our effort into making institutions work that are based on trust, cooperation, and human goodness, or put our effort into making systems work that are based upon the alternative? And I think anybody who reads Humankind will come to the conclusion that it would be much better for us to spend our effort trying to make systems work based upon our true and positive nature. Now, Rutger, before you go, I'm not sure you've had any time to do this because you've been promoting your fabulous book, but I, I've asked everyone who's a guest on this podcast whether there's anything they've done during lockdown, any new attribute, new skill, new enthusiasm that they have developed, whether it's baking bread or, in my case, learning to play the guitar and sing at the same time, although I can do neither. Have you managed to develop any new skill or attribute? Well, the only thing that I can think of is, I mean, I'm trying to learn how to write in English. I mean, I'm obviously doing lots of interviews in English. And then this book was translated by my two wonderful translators, Erica Moore and Elizabeth Manton. But I just wrote my first piece, actually, on my own in English. I mean, I was happy about that. It was published in Time magazine. But I must admit, I did have the help of Deep Translate there, which is a pretty fantastic tool. I guess I'm going to practice a bit more with actually... Uh, writing on my own in English. Rutger Bregman, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And will you make me a promise? And that is that when things get back to normal, you'll come and speak to us at the RSA. Of course, I'd love to. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith. <laughs>